Maybe everyone forgot it's not daylight savings time till next week. <laughs> uh, good afternoon. My name is Fred Youngling. I'm the interim head of the Science and Engineering Library. And it's my privilege to welcome you to our quarterly lecture series entitled Synergy, Explorations in Science and Society. The purpose of this, of this lecture series is to provide a platform for the UCSC and Santa Cruz community to learn about the exciting research in science and engineering currently in progress at UCSC. Many people were involved in the production of today's event, including Terry Hagen, Molly Jaffe, Cynthia Johns, Danielle Kane, Gus Lane, Peggy McNicholas, Vince Naboa, Ferry Ranima, Wei Wei, and all of the Science and Engineering Library Access Services students, and undoubtedly one or two other people whose contributions were so selfless that I forgot who they were. And of course, I'd like to thank University Librarian Virginia Steele for her ongoing support of our efforts. We're interested in hearing your thoughts and comments and any suggestions you might have for future speakers. Comment cards are available on your seats or you can speak to any one of the Science and Engineering Library staff. Speaking of the welcome table, if you didn't stop by on your way in, please make sure you take a moment on your way out so that you can pick up copies of articles by today's featured speaker, Dr. Karen Ottoman. You can also pick up your very own Synergy Lecture Series post-it notes, and we also have a sign-in sheet for those of you who wish to be notified by email about our upcoming lectures. We've created a web page for our quarterly lecture series, which lists our upcoming speakers, and we have some lined up for the rest of this year, including Professor Mark Mangle this May 17th, and Professor Pradeep Musharak, who will be our fall quarter 2007 lecturer. Also, next month on a date to be determined, probably April 17th, Professor Gary Griggs will present a lecture in McHenry Library, which will be co-sponsored by Synergy and McHenry Library's Mosaic Lecture Series. And we'd love to see you at all of those events. Now I'd like to have Cynthia Johns, our environmental toxicology and maps librarian, introduce today's speaker. Hello, I'm Cynthia Johns. I'm the librarian who is the liaison to the Environmental Toxicology Department. The Environmental Toxicology field, oops, often called ETOX here, concerns itself with how toxic substances poison humans and animals. Our program at UC Santa Cruz is unique in that we study living harmful agents, such as the bacterium, I knew I was going to blow this, Heliobacter pylori that we'll hear about today, as well as chemical agents such as the metal mercury. I have the pleasure this afternoon of introducing Dr. Karen Ottoman, Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental Toxicology. Dr. Ottoman came to UCSC in the spring of 1999 following a stint at UC Berkeley as a postdoctoral fellow. She is an alumna of UC Davis, where she received a BS with honors in bacteriology, and she holds a PhD in microbiology and molecular genetics from Harvard University. Her lab has received grants from the NIH, National Institute of Health, the American Cancer Society, Ellison Medical Foundation, Burroughs Welcome Fund, and other agencies. 
Karen Ottoman is an appointed member of the editorial board for the journal Infection and Immunity and a member of the American Society for Microbiology. She's the author of many publications about her research, and we have copies of some of her most recent articles available on the welcome table outside the doors of this room. She's frequently been the instructor for the Upper Division Microbiology course, uh, graduate seminars on bacterial pathogens, and often shares her expertise through guest lectures in other courses. This afternoon, Dr. Ottoman will be describing her research in her talk entitled, Swimming in the Stomach, the Ulcer-Causing Bacterium, Heliobacter pylori, and Disease. Please welcome Karen Ottoman. See what happens. Thank you, Cynthia and Fred, for the kind introduction, and thank you all for coming. Um, I uh, enjoy having questions and interruptions, so feel free to ask me anything that comes to mind. And let's get that to go here. There we go. Ha. Um, so. As Cynthia said, I'm going to tell you today about the work that we've been doing in our lab on, um, some of the work we've been doing in our lab on, it's actually Helicobacter. This is a very common uh, pronunciation problem. It's Helicobacter. I'll tell you a little bit why it's called that, pylori and um, disease. And then first, I'm going to start out telling you a little bit about how this um, bacterium was discovered, um, because it's kind of an interesting story. And then I'll tell you about the, our research focus and some of the results we have. So. Um, Helicobacter pylori causes ulcers, and, but it's an interesting micro because it was only discovered about 20 years ago. Before that, people thought that ulcers were um, caused by stress, pretty much. And so, basically, if you had an ulcer before uh, the mid-'80s, you would go to the doctor with a lot of stomach pain, and they would uh, think that you had some reason you had excess stomach acid. And the way they would treat you then is just to give you antacids and try to get you to change your uh, stressful lifestyle or perhaps your uh, eating too much spicy food diet. Um, but usually when people um, had an ulcer in the 80s or before, they would have a chronic disease that would never go away. So it would be a recurrent disease. Um, and even though they might you know, retire to the Santa Cruz Mountains and get rid of their stressful lifestyle, they never got rid of the ulcer. Um, so. And what an ulcer is, is just, um, it can occur in the stomach or the intestine. And it's basically, uh, the, the analogy that, or the thing that people most can relate to is it's kind of like a canker sore in your mouth. It's like a little sore in the side of your stomach. Here's a picture of one here looking in somebody's stomach. It's, it appears as a white patch. And here's a diagram here that was um, in an article in uh, CNN, actually, about when Boris Yeltsin had, a, um, had an ulcer. And basically what happens is the, the lining of the stomach um, erodes away, and the stomach, as most people know, is filled with acid. And so basically what you have is a kind of an open sore that gets exposed to acid, and it's extreme, they can be extremely painful. They are extremely painful. Oops, I can forget I can do this here. Okay, so in the history of scientific discoveries, the discovery of Helicobacter pylori is very interesting because actually people had observed bacteria in ulcer craters for a really long time. Um, even definitely by the 40s, it was well known that you could observe bacteria in the ulcers. And it, even people claim back into like around 1900, people had observed that there were bacteria in ulcers. And people even knew that you could take antibiotics and cure an ulcer. But for some reason, this information was basically lost from sort of the general public or general medical establishment, actually. 
Um, and people forgot about it basically after the 40s. And so one interesting question is basically, the part of the reason the information was discarded was that you could see bacteria in the ulcer, but people didn't know if they caused it. They thought, well, maybe there's this open sore, it's kind of gummy for bacteria, so there's an open sore, bacteria go there, and then they can survive in the open sore. Um, and actually, people thought pretty much there really even shouldn't be bacteria in the stomach, so they kind of discarded all this information until um, these Australian people, Barry uh, Marshall and Robin Warren, decided to actually test whether the ulcer bacteria that they could see in the ulcers would cause ulcers. And so that's a picture of them here. Um, Robin Warren is the older guy, and Barry Marshall is a younger guy. And I'll tell you in a minute, Barry Marshall is the one, he's going to actually drink helicobacter. And this guy didn't have to, maybe because he was his boss. Um, but <laughs> uh, so basically, there is a, a sort of a set of paradigms that people use to answer these kind of questions. And they were first formulated in the late 1800s by Robert Koch and they're called Koch's postulates. And basically, the, what you do is if you, so you have this bacteria in an ulcer, and you want to find out, did it cause the ulcer? You go through a set of um, uh, steps. Basically, first isolate the bacteria, so it's a pure and only bacteria you have. And then take that bacteria and um, basically study sort of its, um, how it's found. Is it found in people, it should be found in people, only in people with the disease and not in healthy people. But the real test is basically after you isolate the bacteria, you give it to a healthy individual or animal and see if that um, individual or animal gets the same disease and then re-isolate the bacteria from that person. So unfortunately, so they, had, they were able to isolate the bacteria um, as around, around 1980, but they couldn't get it to infect any animals. So they were um, kind of stuck. So they were trying you know, monkeys, mice, all sorts of stuff. It wouldn't infect anything. So that's when um, Barry Marshall, decided to take it um, himself. So he drank a pretty large amount, about 10 billion ulcer bacteria. And then this is the bacteria that we now know is Helicobacter pylori. And then um, he actually first went in and made sure he didn't have any of the bacteria. So he did the first test. He didn't have any of the bacteria. He didn't have an ulcer. And so he drank 10 billion. And then he wrote a paper about it and describes um, that early on, his stomach gurgled a lot. After about one week, he had some stomach pain and vomiting. And his coworkers say, he was irritable and had putrid breath. So if you know anybody who fits this criteria, you might know, suggest that they get their stomachs examined. Um, so this was about in the one week time frame. At about two weeks, the doctor, doctors examined his stomach. So they put an endoscope down into his stomach. And they could see that he had basically the beginning symptoms of an ulcer. And then they removed the, um, a little sample of that. And they were able to isolate the bacteria, Helicobacter pylori, in that stomach sample. Yes? Oh, to see if you get it? Uh, yeah, you can drink 10 billion of another bacteria. Yeah, sure. Um, it's uh, whether you get a stomach. Most bacteria, yeah, you would, I mean, if you drank, it depends on what you drank. If you drank something really harmless, like um, lactobacillus or something that's in yogurt, you could drink 10 billion of that and you'd be fine. So, yes, you're asking, does any bacteria, would any, if you drank this big of a dose of anything, would you get an ulcer? No. <laughs> it was only him. Um, no, they only tried this. There have been other, I mean, there are definitely other people who take a lot of bacteria, like a lot of people take cholera. I mean, not by volunteer, well, sort of voluntary, as a human trials. There are human trials on other organisms, and you can drink an awful lot of them. I think they wanted to, he took such a big dose because he wanted to make sure that he would get infected. So, he didn't want to take a chance that um, he would take too little. So, he, oops, he actually, uh, 
um, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren actually got the um, Nobel Prize in 2005, so just last year, for this discovery. Um, and part of the reason it was so significant was it really uh, sort of opened the door or opened people's eyes to the idea that maybe um, diseases that we don't think of as infectious could have an infectious cause. And um, sort of put you know, this out here because before this really ulcers were not thought of as an infectious disease. They were thought of as this chronic stress situation. And so um, in the, if you look in the news now, every now and then you see some idea that maybe um, microbes could cause other diseases that we don't really know what the cause is. Um, one you see a lot are things like heart disease. Um, sometimes people talk about schizophrenia as a possible microbial cause. Uh, recently, there's been a lot of press about obesity. I don't know if people have seen that. There's uh, some evidence that people who are obese have a different microbial flora in their intestine and that that may contribute to their, um, basically that they basically gain a lot of weight from a small amount of calories. And then cancer, which I'll talk a little bit about H. pylori and cancer, is another possibility that there are some infectious causes of cancers. So H. pylori um, is the bacteria we're going to talk about, so I'll tell you a little bit more about it. These are some pictures of it. It's, uh, it's called helicobacter because it's helical shaped, so it looks kind of like a little corkscrew. And it's found in the primate stomach of actually many, many people. I'll tell you a little more about that. It's, it doesn't really like the um, acid part of the stomach. So out in, the, in your stomach, the middle is very acidic. And the uh, part, so basically your cells have to be protected from that acid. So what your cells do is make a lot of mucus, a big thick layer of snot, essentially, that overlies your cells and protects them from the acid. And helicobacter actually lives way down in that mucus where the um, part that's basically a pH of neutral. So they're not, they're not um, subjected to the acid. So this is just a picture here showing some stomach cells and the helicobacter kind of cozy right up to the, basically the human cells. Um, this is a, you can buy actually a little stuffed helicobacter from um, giantmicrobes.com and this is supposed to show how realistic it is. This is an electron micrograph and this is the stuffed helicobacter. And I have to say, of, they sell a lot of microbes and I think it's one of the cutest. Um, um, huh? There, there are a lot of cute ones, but uh, I have some evidence because uh, one of my colleagues, Fitnat Yildiz, has gone to her kid's first grade classroom and brought a collection of the microbes and then actually tried to get the kids to isolate their own microbes. And they always want the helicobacter to stay in the class because it has hair and it's yellow. Um, so it doesn't really have hair. I'll talk about what the hair is in a minute. But, um, and so in the infection, basically people seem to be infected as children, and then they remain infected for their entire lives. So this is actually a chronic infection that um, usually people don't even know when they got infected. So most of the time, a kid, kids are infected in this country before the age of 10, um, and they didn't know when they're infected. It probably manifests as like a kind of vomiting flu thing. Um, that kids have, you know, every two months or something, and nobody ever thought that this particular one was Helicobacter. And then once they're infected, they, uh, it's thought that people don't clear the infection, they keep the infection in their stomach for their whole life, and then sometime later, when they're um, older usually, they will end up developing ulcers. So usually ulcers are diseases of, um, you know, certainly at least in the 20s, 30s, 40s, um, after you've had the infection for decades probably. 
So the infection causes ulcers, as I've said, and actually also increases the chance that you will get gastric cancer. And so what happens when you have H. pylori is that you get infected and your body is unhappy about that, and so it, uh, it mounts an immune response. So it makes antibodies and it has immune cells come into the stomach, into the site of infection, and try to fight off the H. pylori. But they don't work, and we don't really totally know why, uh, but neither the antibodies nor the cells are able to get rid of the helicobacter. And so what happens is you have a long-term immune response. So usually the way the immune response is supposed to work is you get infected, the immune response comes in and removes the pathogen, and then the immune response is over. But in this case, the immune response keeps trying and trying and trying for decades and decades. And that kind of a situation um, is called chronic inflammation, and this basically is not good. And so this is what underlies the cancer, is that you get this uh, state where you have these immune cells that are trying to fight the helicobacter, and they're making, the way they fight the um, bugs is to make, uh, the microbes is to make a lot of toxic products, but those toxic products can also harm your cells. And they basically end up altering the whole environment of the stomach and make it a more, a, uh, basically make a lot of cell turnover that then turns into a cancer. And this is similar to what happens in a disease like hepatitis, where you get a chronic liver inflammation that then can lead to liver, liver cancer. So this is um, not unheard of. Uh, Helicobacter happens to be the only bacteria that seems to be able to do this, in, at least in humans so far. And this is just showing, this is just a Venn diagram, which I'll talk about in a minute, but I'll uh, talk about more detail, that a lot of people are Helicobacter infected, but only a subset actually develop disease. So some develop ulcers in the duodenum, some develop ulcers in the stomach, some develop cancers of um, two different types, basically. And they're kind of almost mutually exclusive. So you don't, people who get an ulcer don't tend to get cancer. They tend to get um, something, they either tend to get cancer or an ulcer. And so as I said, it's, it's extremely common. About half the world is colonized. In the US, um, it's about 30 to 40% of the population has H. pylori, so this is just the world with different um, prevalencies of H. pylori infection. It's very, very common in um, parts of the world where sanitation is not so good. So it definitely correlates extremely well with crummy sanitation. Um, in the US, uh, Western Europe, and Australia uh, tends to be lower. Japan tends to be lower in, in prevalency. Um, so obviously, um, half of the, you know, about you say 30% of the U.S. is infected. We don't. We know that not everybody, not 30% of the U.S. has an ulcer. So it's only about, I would say, it should say 10% of infected people actually develop an ulcer. So um, you can think of Helicobacter pylori as sort of a, a precursor or a, a important part of getting an ulcer. But then other things contribute to whether you will actually develop disease. Probably your genetics, possibly environmental factors feed into this. Um, to make your stomach either a stomach that will get an ulcer or not. And they don't know, they know a few factors and they sort of have hints about what these can be, um, but certainly don't, we don't understand this yet. Huh? <clears throat> yeah, um, that's a good question. The question is, is it a fecal oral transmission? Uh, it seems to not be, actually. It seems to be um, probably oral oral. And in this, in countries where, they, in every country actually where they study it, it runs very strongly in families. Um, there's not really transmission like throughout a whole town. It'll be that, you know, my family, like as a mother, um, actually I'm very likely to infect my child. So the risk factors are if your mom has it. So something that I do to the kid, whatever it is, um, <laughs> increases the likelihood that I will give him Helicobacter pylori. And so it's, um, 
they do know, like, if you're infected, they know that, um, let's say that I go into the doctor, I'm, I'm not infected, but let's say I go into the doctor and I am infected, if they uh, make me have what they call a cathartic stool, which basically means um, they give you drugs so that you empty out your entire intestine, um, then they can isolate helicobacter in the feces in that case, but from normal excrement, they can't really. So it's kind of, for some reason, doesn't really come out, at least in large numbers. And then if they make those same people, and believe it or not, there were these people who volunteered for a study at Stanford, they made the same people vomit, and then they um, basically put um, bacterial media dishes next to the vomiting person or meters away, a meter away, and they can isolate um, Helicobacter pylori being aerosolized in the vomit and uh, kind of floating through the air and landing on the uh, media. So it seems to come out. That being said, I mean, it's not like most mothers vomit on their ch children. It's probably the opposite way. So um, the bottom line is they don't really know. The, the only case of known transmission, see, part of the problem is that it's people get it when they're kids, and they're not diagnosed until decades later. So you don't know what the event was that gave the kid helicobacter pylori. But they, there was one great case that I love to tell because people love the story, um, <laughs> where there was a person who had a heart attack, and he was H. pylori infected. And uh, someone else gave him CPR. And while he was getting the CPR, the, the heart attack guy who was H. pylori positive vomited into the mouth of the CPR giver. And that CPR giver got H. pylori from him. So this is one of the few cases where they actually know, you know the event that gave the H. pylori to the person. And that it, in this case, it was vomit. So. Yeah, so um, the tr yeah, I actually didn't put this on any slide. Um, so, oops. The, um, Antibiotics are quite effective at treating H. pylori, and that's probably one of the reasons that, um, that contributes, at least in part, to why the U.S. has a low incidence. And actually, the U.S. incidence has been going down steadily with kind of increasing antibiotic use. Um, you, don't, you probably don't get rid of it if you take just a regular course of antibiotics, but the treatment is basically two antibiotics and, a, and an antacid taken for two weeks. So it's a little bit kind of a more of a stronger dosage. But in general, if you do that, you will get rid of the H. pylori. But the average person, if you just take, you know, a five-day dose of, you know, one antibiotic, probably it would only get rid of some people's helicobacter. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. So yeah, so that's what they do. If you have an ulcer now, what you, they do is they go in and they check your blood to see if you have uh, antibodies to H. pylori, usually because that's an easy, easy way to test for it. And then if you do and you have an ulcer, they'll treat you with antibiotics. Are all ulcers bacteria-based? Um, no, they are not all bacterial-based. About 80% or 80 to 90% are bacterial-based. There's about 10% or so that are uh, caused by taking uh, long-term high doses of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, so like painkillers, basically Advil. So people who take people who are in chronic pain who take a lot of those drugs to manage the pain, th those drugs interfere with a different pathway that basically mess up your stomach architecture. And then there's about 10% or so of ulcers that they don't really know, they can't figure out what the cause is. So whether it's another infectious agent, it's possible, or um, I don't, yeah, it's not clear. So yeah, so usually if you go in with an ulcer, they first check if you have H. pylori because that's the most likely thing, and then also ask you, are you taking a lot of, are you taking a lot of Tylenol, whatever, you know, <laughs> doctors. And then, then that will account for almost all ulcers, but not quite, so. So um, we're interested in understanding the molecular factors that um, Helicobacter uses to live in the stomach and cause disease. 
And one long-term goal of this is to be able to identify um, basically proteins or uh, things that the bacteria need in order to survive. And the idea would be that then if you could inhibit them or get rid of them, then you would be able to cure H. pylori. And so basically, their antibiotics work well now against H. pylori, but as probably most people know, there is increasing resistance. Most bacteria are becoming resistant to known antibiotics. So sort of a general quest in the field of bacterial infectious disease is to keep looking to make sure we're ready to make new antibiotics when we need them. And so one of the factors that, um, sorry, that's a little hard to see. I have another video, another video of this, though. Um, is basically um, one property that's really important for H. pylori is its ability to swim. And so this is um, a hard to see picture of H. pylori swimming around here. And I pseudocolored it red to make it interesting. But it makes it, of course, harder to see now. But basically, there's bacteria moving around there. Um, this is, happens to be an air bubble. So there's a lot of them swimming about. Oh, this is in a microscope, just in the lab. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right. In just regular, yeah, not in your stomach. Um, so this swimming ability is really common. A lot of bacteria are able to swim. I'll mention a little bit how they do it. And, but they don't usually just swim around at random because swimming is actually expensive. It's kind of like for us. It would be like running constantly. Um, and the idea is for bacteria that they don't run for exercising, that they actually um, run to get to good things or away from bad things. And so basically we know that bacteria like to run, if they're photosynthetic, they'll run towards or swim towards certain wavelengths of light. They certainly swim towards food. They swim towards places they like to live, like plants or in a fish. Um, so this is pretty well understood that a lot of bacteria can swim and that they generally swim um, towards something good or away from something bad. And the way they swim is using these little organelles called uh, flagella, uh, or singular is a flagellum, and they are a long helical structures, I'll show you a real picture in a minute, that basically act like a propeller. And so they're not a whip, they're actually a rotary motor that acts just like a propeller, and they can rotate either clockwise or counterclockwise. And so what, they, what bacteria do is bacteria are very small. Um, they're only about the size of about a, a one micron, which is a 10 to the minus sixth of a meter. So they're very small, and they can't um, tell across their body, they cannot tell if something is good on one side, more on one side than the other. So they cannot tell that there's more good something in this direction. So what they actually do is just a, a time, um, they, they look at their environment in at time intervals, and they just say, is the environment better now than it was? And so the analogy for this is uh, if you're in some place in a building and someone's making popcorn in the microwave and you can smell it. And so what you can do is migrate towards that popcorn and at any moment, you're deciding, is the smell getting stronger or not? And if it's getting stronger, you keep going. And that's exactly what bacteria do, is that they're, they're checking out, at this time, is the signal stronger? Um, and in that case, I'll keep going. If the signal is weaker, then they, they, all they do is um, randomly move and try a new direction and then see stronger, yes or no. So they're always kind of asking yes or no. Um, and so you can sort of picture that sorry, as uh, two behaviors that bacteria can do. They can either reorient in space or they can swim, and so that's basically all they do. So they're simple little creatures. Um, and they, their path is shown here in the beginning, or in the middle, where they um, will migrate. If there's more of an attractant, something good down here, they'll end up sort of carrying out a random walk that is a bias. So it's actually called a bias random walk towards, um, and end up going towards the attractant. 
So here's an actual picture of not of Helicobacter but of E. coli done by um, a really excellent scientist at Harvard University named Howard Berg who is a biophysicist who studies a lot about swimming mechanics. And um, so basically what you're looking at here is the kind of the blobby part out in the front is the bacteria and then the long um, kind of filamenty part in the back there is the flagella. And so they're actually swimming and then to change direction one of the little um, flagella fly out from that bundle and kind of cause the bacteria to turn. So what you're seeing here, it'll loop again here, is a swim and then a, a what people would call a tumble or a slight direction change. So in the worlds of pathogens, so as I said, a lot of bacteria are um, able to swim, but in terms of bacteria that can cause disease, there's not a lot to understand about why they would swim or if, if um, the larger question of if you eliminated the ability to swim, would it matter? Like, would the bacteria even care? Maybe they don't care. Maybe the case is that they actually swim in a setting that's outside of a person, and so once they get into you, they don't need to swim anymore. So, um, but you can imagine if they did swim inside of you, they might do a variety, they might use the swimming for um, a variety of purposes. One would be to get to the site of infection where they want to infect, but then they don't need to swim anymore once they get there. Um, alternatively, they might actually need to swim for the whole time um, to either sort of run away from you, your defenses, or not get washed out as you, you know, keep eating, and, or actually to find nutrients that are kind of limiting. Or basically, they might actually swim in a way that would help them cause disease. So um, although, as I said, many bacteria are able to swim, we don't really know for any of them the answers to these questions about why they would swim. And Helicobacter um, is one of the best understood, in, in part from our work, actually. And so I'll tell you a little bit about what we've learned about why swimming is good. So um, Helicobacter has to be able to swim to infect animals. And so the way you can do this is you make a, a mutant version of H. pylori that uh, are missing their flagella or the flagellar motor. So the flagella is a, also has a motor and they can't swim. So here's an electromicrograph of some, this actually happens to be two helicobacters stuck together. And here's the flagella out here at one end. And then here's a mutant version where we've uh, basically gone in and genetically removed the uh, gene that would make either the flagella or the motor. We have all sorts of mutants like this. And that's a lot of what we do in our lab is basically modify the uh, helicobacter and then ask whether it's messed up or not. And the best analogy I've heard for this process is uh, when, you have a f when you have a fuse, you want to figure out which fuse in your house controls which light. And so you go outside to the fuse box and you turn off the fuse and then you see which light went out. And then you know that that fuse controlled the light. And so this, in this case, we're doing the same thing. We're removing, for example, the flagella and then we're going to ask whether the mutant can infect the animal stomachs. And then if it can't, we know, OK, the flagella was important. But um, as I alluded to, they don't just swim around at random. They like to swim with a purpose. So they actually uh, regulate their motility um, in that swimming and tumbling fashion called, in a process that's called actually chemotaxis. And so this is derived from the, um, I guess, Latin, maybe, <laughs> for taxis for movement and then chemo for chemicals. So it's movement in response to chemicals. And the way this works at the, in a close-up, this is a close-up of a bacteria here um, showing the bacterial body and then these are the flagella. They have a set of receptors that are usually sort of um, have a portion that's outside the cell and a portion that's inside. And the portion that's inside um, 
controls a signal transduction cascade, and the portion that's outside senses stuff. So in E. coli, which is a very well understood bacteria, the chemoreceptors bind to something like um, aspartic acid, which is an amino acid, and then basically when they bind aspartic acid, they are able to communicate, hey, I have, we have aspartate, they communicate that to the flagellar motor and tell it to swim. And so this is just um, kind of a normal way that cells monitor their environment and then control their response in, 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 with that knowledge, if you think of them as thinking in mind. And so you can easily um, mess this up if, you, if you're a scientist. Um, you can make a mutant that is missing these, um, these, these proteins that are important for the relaying the information about what is good to the motor. So basically, if you get rid of any of those, it's kind of like making, um, it's essentially if you had like cut somebody's optic nerve or something so that they could no longer, they could, their eyes worked, but there was no way to communicate information to the brain. So they're kind of like they're blind. They can still walk around or swim around, but they can't tell where they're going. And so, indeed, um, to verify that actually we made the right kind of mutant, we um, can test whether they still switch swimming direction the same as the um, wild type or the normal one. And so this is just a graph of that here. Basically, what we do is we film the microbes in the microscope in just lab media and then have an undergrad, in this case it was Daryl Strano, um, sit at the, watch the videos, and then say how often in a five seconds of swimming do they change direction. So basically just watch the, each bacteria and then say how often does it change direction. And you can see for the wild type, the normal bacteria, they, they change direction an average of once every five seconds. But you can see there's some that change twice, you know, three, four, whatever. So that basically each of those points is a different ob observation of a bacterium swimming. And then if you make a mutant that is missing that signal transduction system so that they basically are blind, they basically never change direction, or very, very rarely change direction. So they always are swimming, and they can never decide, okay, let me try something new. Okay, so now we have our H. pylori that's uh, essentially swimming blindly. The question is, does that matter? And so I'm gonna tell you three stories about looking at those type of mutants. And I'll tell you that, um, yes, it does matter, yes, or I wouldn't be here. Maybe I wouldn't even have tenure. Um, Chemotaxis helps H. pylori colonize the stomach. Um, chemotaxis helps H. pylori find an essential nutrient that um, is iron. And um, chemotaxis also helps H. pylori actually cause disease. So it helps H. pylori interact with your, um, your cells in a way that triggers the immune response. So I'll show you how we figured all that out in briefly. So basically the way to tell whether the mutants can infect the stomach or not is to infect animals with either the normal H. pylori or the mutant that is non-chemotactic, and then assess the number of H. pylori in the stomach after two weeks. And so if the H. pylori are normal, you get about five times 10 to the six, or five million H. pylori for every gram of stomach. And then if you make mutants that are unable, they're swimming blindly, they actually still are able to infect the animals, but they cannot, um, they kind of cause a little bit of a defect in the numbers of bacteria in the stomach. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, the, the popular animal models for H. pylori are mice and gerbils. So we've done both. This is all mouse stuff. Uh -huh. Yes, why wasn't, yeah, why weren't the original people able to infect animals? Oh, it turns out about one out of every 100 or 200 H. pylori's infect mice. 
So not every H. pylori isolate will infect mice. Um, and the reason for that is not known. Um, some strains will infect mice kind of poorly, and then you can mouse adapt them. So basically, you select, use the mouse as a selection to pass the H. pylori through the mouse and find the kind of versions, the mutants, that will infect better. And so we're using all a, uh, a strain that infected okay to begin with. It's, a, it's actually an Australian strain of H. pylori, um, but it was mouse adapted by passing it through mice by somebody in Australia. That's an interesting question of the why, why they don't all, why, they're basically, you can think of it as they're ideally suited for primates, like humans, um, but they're not ideally suited to infect rodents, but they can, if you ask, if you make them. Is the mouse stomach the same pH? Mouse stomach is actually a little more neutral, a little bit more neutral, and it has a slightly different structure, if you care about mouse stomachs, I'm sure you do. It has a, the mice actually, because mice eat a lot of seeds, they're kind of a seed-eating thing. So they actually have a little bit of a rumen, like cows do, at the top of their stomach. That's a kind of a compartment of the stomach that um, has a lot of bacteria in it that helps them digest their seeds. So when we don't have that, we don't eat as much seeds. So I guess that's why. <laughs> They're not identical, though, for sure. Yeah, We're, you're not the same as a mouse. Yeah. So another way to do the same kind of assay is, uh, and it, it tends to be a little bit um, more demanding on the H. pylori, is to do what's called a competition assay. In this case, what you do is you mix together the mutant. Um, in this case, it's um, lacking chemotaxis and the wild type. We mix them together in the lab and then infect the mice with a mixture. And in this case, if the, the wild type or normal one is really uh, a lot better, then it will uh, outcompete usually the mutant. And you can sort of, um, it kind of is more demanding on the mutants because they really have to, they have to stand up to this extra challenge that they're getting from the wild type. And so when we do that, and this is shown um, some such data here, we're basically, we're looking at the number, um, again, on the y-axis, it's the number of H. pylori per gram of stomach on a log scale. And then each point across here is a mouse. And you can see that um, basically the purple is the amount of wild type bacteria you get out, and the blue is the amount of non-chemotactic mutant. So you get a lot more wild type than non-chemotactic mutant out of these stomachs when the two are together. So the wild type basically kicks the butt of the mutant and for some reason fills up all the stomach and basically the mutant can't really get a foothold in there very well. So these types of experiments tell you that chemotaxis is definitely important for living in the stomach. Um, another area we've looked at, and so we've actually done uh, many variations on this assay to try to get at what exactly chemotaxis does for, um, for helping H. pylori. But this is basically some of the um, some of the basic results. Okay. So the um, another area of interest we have is looking at the chemoreceptors, and because I, I think those are very interesting, because those are the uh, proteins out here that actually um, often have a part outside the cell that are actually telling the cell here is the good thing or you know what is out here. So they're actually used by the bacterial cell to monitor their environment and then feed that information into the swimming response. And so they're sort of at the front line of the bacterial response inside your body. So it'd be very interesting to know what these chemoreceptors actually sense. So H. pylori has four of them that all feed into control the motor, the flagellar motor, um, and they are, the names are not really important. They're shown here. So if you, again, make mutants in a, we can go in again back to the H. pylori and um, knock out the gene for each of these proteins and then basically make a mutant that lacks this, 
these chemoreceptors and then analyze those for their ability to infect animals. And um, this is just showing that same competition assay where you mix together the mutant and the wild type. And it's showing the data in a slightly different way where basically what we're doing is um, taking the amount that comes out of the stomach and dividing it by the, uh, sorry, the ratio that comes out divided by the ratio that comes in. And if you don't really need to think about that too much, what I'll tell you is that if it's one, it means the mutant and the wild type are the same, okay? So that there's no defect. And so what you can see is that when you get rid of um, some of the receptors, so each receptor mutant challenged with wild type is shown down here. So for example, this is a mutant missing TLPA of the particular receptor called that. And it's mixed together with wild type in basically equal amounts at the input. And then when you look at the mouse stomach two weeks later, you find that basically there's a lot less of the mutant than the wild type. It's outcompeted about 50-fold. So the, the wild type is about 50-fold better than this mutant. This mutant is actually not really defective um, at all. It uh, actually sometimes does a little bit better than the um, wild type. So getting rid of that chemoreceptor was not detrimental. Getting this, rid of this one was a little bit detrimental. Getting rid of um, this chemoreceptor is very detrimental. And this is a mutant that is um, completely lacking chemotaxis. So I'm going to tell you about, a little bit more about this uh, chemoreceptor here, HLYB. We um, have some idea about what this one actually senses in uh, some work that we've done in collaboration with Kevin Karpels, who's here. And um, we're still trying to, we haven't published it yet, so it's not on the table, um, but we're working on it. Um, and Kevin has helped us use, um, oh wait, let me say one. I'll say yeah. Kevin has used, helped us use some bioinformatic approaches to try to predict what this chemoreceptor senses, and then we've been involved in figuring out if that's right or not. So actually, what um, chemoreceptors generally, though, sense, you know, they um, allow bacteria to swim towards good things, like sugars, and away from bad things. Um, and as I said, there's actually, we don't really know in H. pylori what it actually does sense. Um, it's a safe joke in Santa Cruz, huh? <laughs> safe joke everywhere in academia, probably. Um, there, there are some hints, and I'm going to tell you now that one of the good things that H. pylori swims towards is not donuts, but iron. And so the way we went about these studies is, one is to look at the actual proteins themselves. They have uh, sequences of amino acids, and that can sometimes tell you something about what they do. Um, we haven't gotten very much information about two of them, TLPA and C. They don't really look like anything else in the database, which is one way that you figure out what things do is that if they look like another protein and you know what that protein does, that helps you figure out what they do. Okay, so these ones are as yet unfigured out. Um, this TLPB, which is the one that actually you can knock it out and the, or you can get rid of it and the bacteria don't care, um, that has an interesting motif. I'm not going to talk about that one. But this one, HOYB, also has an interesting motif. And by motif, I just mean that there's a particular sequence of amino acids that actually tells us something about what the protein might do. And in this case, I'm not going to show you the actual sequence, but HOYB has a set of amino acids that are uh, cysteines and histidines mostly. And those type of amino acids are commonly involved in binding metals. And so along the same time that Kevin was helping us figure that out, actually he figured it out, we um, were also doing an assay in the lab to look at whether what H. pylori might respond to. And in this particular assay, what you do is this is a picture of a microscope slide. And you take a the bacteria in basically a neutral solution, which means there's nothing good, there's nothing bad. It's just they like to swim in it, but there's nothing they care about. And then you put a compound that you want to test in the middle. Um, usually it's got to be sort of held in place 
by something, and what we use is basically jello or agarose to basically hold this compound in place, and we surround it with bacteria, and then if they like it, um, they tend to form a ring around the compound in the middle here. And, um, and the idea is that they're sort of swimming in towards their favorite concentration of that compound. Sometimes the ring can be right up next to the compound, or sometimes it can be a little bit away, but the idea is that they're coalescing in response to this chemical. And so some of those results are shown here um, with iron. And so basically this is a looking in the microscope at a very low magnification, so the bacteria kind of show up as a fuzz, but the asterisks down here mark where we've placed some iron. Uh, they're out, sometimes they're up. And then in the case of the normal bacteria, they form a ring that's surrounding um, this, this blob of iron here. And so this is only, because of our microscope setup, we don't have a big enough field to take the picture of the whole blob, so we're just showing sort of a quadrant of the blob um, and showing that basically the bacteria form this kind of tight band. And then if the bacteria aren't modal or are unable to chemotax, they can't form that nice kind of sharp band there. And so here's a mutant that can't swim at all. Here's some mutants that swim, but they swim blindly. And you can see that there's not that same sharp band. Sometimes you can see some kind of clearing here, and that doesn't seem to be um, correlated with motility. It's definitely something, but I'm not sure what it is. But what we do not see is this sharp band. Um, then there's other various um, mutants examined here. I'll show you the, the bottom set of panels here are the mutants missing the other chemoreceptors that don't sense iron. And so you, since they retain the receptor that senses iron, you would expect them to still form this band. But here's the mutants, um, two different assays with the mutant missing the HLYB chemoreceptor. And um, although sometimes it forms, again, this kind of hazy clearing, it does not form this really tight band like the wild type does. So we think that this receptor is important for sensing iron. And um, actually, this has been uh, a long slog uh, <laughs> to figure this out. And a lot of, a lot of work done by, in particular, this woman, Tessa Anderman, who was an undergrad in our lab, actually, and then stayed as a researcher and then now is in medical school to get this assay to be reliably working. And since then, since we know where we strongly thought that iron was something that was sensed by H. pylori, we've now been able to develop two other assays that support that iron senses, that H. pylori senses iron. One reason that uh, we kind of had to go to these extra measures is because um, no other bacteria has been shown, no other um, pathogen has been shown to swim in response to iron. So even though iron is actually something that pretty much all bacteria need, and we need it too, and there's actually often a battle between us and our bacteria for the iron, we try to keep our iron from the bacteria as actually a way to fight infection. Um, that it, there to date has not been a pathogen that goes after iron using this swimming ability. So although um, I'm not sure how common this will be, um, one way we can look at that is to look for this chemoreceptor in other pathogens. And so I have a student in my lab, Jenny Draper, who um, first worked with Kevin Karplus and now is working with me to try to look at how broadly distributed is this chemoreceptor in the bacterial world, like how many bacteria have it, and um, how, many other might do, how many others might do iron chemotaxis. We're making progress, and Kevin, you'll be happy to hear. We're planning to submit the paper, so it will help me by the end of the month. But <laughs> science often goes a lot slower than you think. So we have some critical controls left to do, and we're working very hard on them. So, so the last thing I'll tell you in just a minute, I'll summarize it, is uh, that the, the, the way that, um, so H. pylori, the way you get the disease, I said, is that 
you, the bacteria come into your stomach, shown here, here's your stomach cells, here's some mucus overlying them. The bacteria come in and they interact with these cells and these cells say, oh, oh shoot, there's a bacteria here, it's bad, we must initiate the infection fighting. And so these cells actually respond by producing molecules that are called cytokines. Um, the one that is best, well, best characterized is called IL-8. And what IL-8 does is actually call in other um, immune cells. So basically IL-8 is an attractant for immune cells, especially ones called neutrophils and um, some other lymphocytes. And this is how basically the whole disease starts off, is by H. pylori coming in, um, telling these epithelial cells of the stomach cells sensing the H. pylori and then initiating a response that then pulls in the immune cells. And so obviously in terms of understanding the disease of H. pylori, it's very important to understand how this bacteria interacts with these cells in order to kick off this cascade, which then leads to the ulcers and the cancer. And so the way you can look at this is to take a stomach, again, and uh, stain it for these immune cells. And what you can see, let's look over here first. I, these are really hard to look at, but this is actually what pathologists look at all day. Um, if you ever get like a biopsy done, they stain and look for certain characteristics. And so in this case, what they've done is we've stained the uh, immune cells, and the immune cells stain kind of bluish. And um, the regular cells stain blue too, but when there's a lot of immune cells there, you see these big blobs of blue. And so this is indicative of a lot of immune cells have come into this stomach. And so in this case, this is actually a uh, gerbil infected with a wild type H. pylori. This is one infected with a non-chemotactic mutant, and this is one infected and completely uninfected. And so the pathologist, um, we don't actually do this work, we collaborate with somebody, and we send him stomach samples and we don't tell him what they're infected with. We, he just sends us back a score. So what he does is turn this amount of blue into a score, it's shown on the next slide, of a, it's called a histology score or inflammatory score. And I just want you to focus on these panels here. So basically a mouse infected, this is, these are actually mice now, um, mice infected with wild type, H. pylori would give an inflammatory score of about two, and then mice infected with non-chemotactic mutants give a significantly less inflammatory score. And I should say that actually at this stage of infection, um, there isn't a difference in the number of these bacteria in the stomach. So there's the same numbers of the wild type and the non-chemotactic mutants in the stomach, but it seems to be that there's a lot, significantly less inflammation. It in mice, it takes a long time for this to develop. It takes about six months to get these scores or to get this level of inflammation. And so as I said, actually, it's really important for the H. pylori to interact with the cells in order to trigger this response. And that's shown just in a review here where basically they're showing some H. pylori interacting with the, the stomach cells and then the stomach cells responding and attracting in the um, immune cells. And so a really important uh, step for kicking this off again is the ability of H. pylori to interact with the stomach cells. And so we went back and looked at some of our samples to see if maybe non-chemotactic mutants have a defect in that. And this is kind of a hard assay to do. Um, as a matter of fact, we just, we just submitted a paper on this and we got back extremely positive reviews. It was like the most positive review I've ever gotten on a paper where they said, uh, they said, you know, bravo for trying to do this because people have had a hard time trying to quantitate this interaction. So basically what we do is, uh, again, we blind the researcher to the, to the identity of the infecting strain. So they don't know what strain is infected, what the mice are infected with. And then they look in the stomach and quantify every H. pylori they can see into one of three categories. So this is the actual stomach here, and this is now stained 
with a uh, stain that stains the bacteria. And those are the bacteria there. So they're small and they're dark. And what we're looking at is to see how close they are to the yellow surface, which is the stomach cells. And so what um, Susan did here, who's a researcher in my lab, she classified the bacteria as either touching or um, distant, basically, that they're kind of out here in the white part, which is actually the mucus. It's not showing up that well on this, um, on the projector. Um, and sometimes near if they were sort of partially touching. And she just classified bacteria into those three categories. And if you do that, you find that um, bacteria that are wild type are often touching and rarely distant. So they're rarely out there in the mucus. Um, Non-chemotactic mutants, though, are commonly touching, but also often they're distant from the uh, cell surface. So we think that um, basically chemotaxis, these mutants are non-chemotactic, and they cannot really get up and be cozy with these stomach epithelial cells like the mutants, like the wild type can. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we've been working on the statistics of this. Um, uh, I would say probably not um, that there's a, this is within the error. The question is, is this different? Is this statistically different than this? I think it probably is. Um, uh, we've, we need to work with someone. We have been working with someone who knows a little bit more about statistics than we do because basic, very basic statistical tests say that these numbers are not different. So. Um, so whether they are, I'm not totally sure, but <laughs> um, uh, we're trying some different tests to see if maybe we can tease out a difference. But yeah, it sure looks different to me. I mean, the difference between 3.4 and even this number, 10, seems different. And we have a lot of bacteria scored. This is the number of bacteria that we looked at. So we have a lot of bacteria that we scored. But it may not be statistically significant. So the question, I mean, that we started out with is, is chemotaxis a good antibiotic target? Um, well, it depends on what your goal is. I would say that blocking chemotaxis, um, if you made a mutant, so non-chemotaxic mutants can stay in the stomach. So blocking chemotaxis probably would not eliminate an infection. It's a question still, but whether, because um, what I, I, I said, but let me say it again, is that most people, when you come in with a disease, you were infected when you were a kid. So you don't actually want to block infection from happening, usually, in most people. What you're doing is trying to get rid of an infection that's already there. So um, in order for an antibiotic to be effective for H. pylori, it definitely has to um, block a process that's important for the bacteria um, staying in your stomach, not just arriving in your stomach. Um, blocking chemotaxis, though, actually might, oops, sorry, come back. Might decrease the amount of disease. Okay, so this is an interesting area of um, H. pylori biology: is that 90% of people have H. pylori and have no disease, right? So maybe it's actually good for you. Like, why would it still be here if it wasn't good for you? So there are people who believe it is good for you, and there's some evidence that suggests people who are H. pylori infected actually get less esophageal cancer. And so perhaps there's a protective role for H. pylori. So if we can get um, drugs that sort of modulate H. pylori's ability to cause disease in the stomach but allow it to stay there, it might actually be a good thing. Um, but that's uh, very hard to know. <laughs> so um, but it's interesting to speculate about. Basically, I'll just skip this because I basically told you all that and show you the people in my lab. Um, so we just recently moved into the physical sciences building, so some of these pictures are taken there. I have some excellent undergrads. Here's Will, 
Um, Shalvin and Nick, this is kind of a funny picture of him taken with a distorted lens because he didn't show up to my picture taking. Um, so we've had a lot of very productive interactions with um, undergrads in our lab. And I currently have three graduate students, Pam, Jenny, and Andy, who are working on various aspects of chemotaxis. And then Susan Williams is a long-term research associate, and Andrew Castillo is a postdoc, um, all of whom have worked on some aspect of H. pylori. And I particularly want to highlight um, this woman down here, Carrie Ann Terry, who was my first PhD student, and Tessa Anderman, who was a technician in the lab who did an enormous amount of work towards getting um, various um, assays that I showed you. And then in collaborate, we have some great collaborators for our histology work. Um, our histology is all done by Elliot Carter. Um, he's far away in South Alabama, but it doesn't matter. You mail everything to him, and he's really extremely helpful. David McGee also has helped on the histology. And these, uh, these are two veterinarians, Corinne Davis and Catherine Beckwith, who actually help with histology, too. Um, and then Kevin Karplus at UCSC, I mentioned, who has been helping us with the protein structure prediction. And then, as you mentioned earlier, we have a variety of funding sources without whom none of this would have happened. So. And then this is just ending on our eTOX webpage. If you want more information about our department and what we study, then there you go. Thank you. I know it's a little bit over, but if anybody has any more questions or want to come up afterwards, I'm happy to. Yeah, Mike? Mm -hmm. No, no one has isolated any phages yet for H. pylori. Um, there's even some hypothesis there, there might not be any. So there's none in the genomes, really. So yeah, it would surprise me. I mean, there's not many bacteria that don't have a phage. but um, And I'm trying to think of the argument about why they think there might not be any. can't actually remember what the actual argument is for that. So, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I didn't say that, but yes. Um, pretty much it seems like. I'm not going to say every mammal, but a lot of mammals they've looked at have a helicobacter. It's not always pylori. The closest one to pylori is actually um, what's called helicobacter acinus, and it lives in cheetahs. And interestingly, the, uh, they just sequenced the genome of that cheetah, cheetah um, helicobacter, and they think that actually cheetahs got it from us. So <laughs> it looks like that we gave them <laughs> their helicobacter, and then the poor cheetahs in captivity, cheetahs are very, apparently, very, um, have a lot of problem with ulcers. And then the other interesting species that um, is our dolphins. Actually, marine mammals all seem to have helicobacter. And dolphins, again, in a, um, the way it was first discovered was these dolphins that basically go put bombs on the bottom of submarines. So they work for the Navy. So they're in long-term captivity situations and under veterinary care. And they have a lot of problems with ulcers, too. Ferrets is another one. They have a, ferrets, apparently, have a lot of problems with ulcers. Um, so yes, so I think probably. As people look more in every single stomach, they'll probably find a helicobacter in there. But just hasn't been done all the way yet. Yeah, if you're interested in some particular animal, animal giraffe, I don't know. <laughs> ferret. Yeah, they actually use ferrets in labs a lot, actually. <laughs> not here, but um, well, they're probably not so bad. They kind of bite, though. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming.